Welcome to Had to Be There, the podcast that allows you to explore the world's greatest destinations through the stories of those who have been there. Here to ignite the wanderlust within, your host and favorite travel planner, Kelly Acevedo. Welcome back to the Had to Be There podcast. I'm your host, Kelly, and this is episode 30. Today, we are traveling to the northwest corner of Spain. And in preparation, I've put together a quick list of the top three things to do in Galicia, Spain. So here we go. Numero tres. Go to El Banco Más Bonito del Mundo. Along the northern Galician coast, there are plenty of signs indicating the most beautiful bench in the world. And okay, the title's a little presumptuous for a bench, but once you arrive and catch a glimpse of the view, you may be inclined to agree. It is one of the most beautiful places in Galicia to take photos. So this is a must visit spot for all you photography addicts and shutterbugs out there. Numero dos. Explore a centuries-old lighthouse. The Tower of Hercules is the oldest working lighthouse in the world and the only fully preserved Roman lighthouse still in use for maritime signaling. This lighthouse was built in the 2nd century and renovated in 1791. Climbing to the top of this structure is one of the coolest things to do while traveling in Spain. And finally, numero uno, the top must-do thing in Galicia is to visit the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela. There you'll find the shrine and resting place of St. James the Apostle. And getting to this destination is an adventure in and of itself. El Camino de Santiago, or the Way of St. James, is a network of pilgrims' ways leading to the shrine of the Apostle St. James the Great in Santiago de Compostela. The best thing about the Camino is that you have several ways to reach your destination. You can basically start wherever you want and just follow your way to Santiago. That's the true beauty of it. The Camino de Santiago is a great way of traveling slow and getting to know Galicia and the locals. It started as a pilgrimage, but it's so popular today, it's more of just another means of traveling through Spain and hiking than any other religious reasons. And it's along this pilgrimage that we find this week's guest. Allow me to introduce to you Julie Connor, owner and editor of Bayou City Press in Houston, Texas. All right, Julie, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here with us today. Kelly, thank you for inviting me and thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk with you and with your audience. Absolutely. Before we jump into your story, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Uh, Sure. So my name is Julie Connor, and I thought when I was in my 20s that I was going to be a writer, either perhaps a journalist or a writer. I got a master's degree in creative writing. But, you know, life happens. And in my case, instead of pursuing a writing career, I applied for and became a U.S. diplomat. 
So I was a diplomat for 33 years, serving nine times overseas in seven different countries. And also, of course, traveling to many other countries as part of my job. But it's not that I wasn't writing during that career. I was, but it was professional writing. So I was writing speeches for the ambassador or press releases or sending reports back to Washington about programs we'd had. Mm-hmm. So after 33 years, um, it was time for me to retire, and I did. And since then, I've returned to my first love, which mm-hmm. is writing. And by writing, I mean creative writing. So I've published two books now, and I'm also a publisher. So I am in the process yeah. of publishing another author. Um, that's kind of a quick roundup, 33 years <laughs> in the Foreign Service and now and since 2014, doing writing and publishing. That is an incredible story. So you must have gotten to see some really incredible places. Yes, I have. I have been very lucky in that. The thing about being a diplomat in the Foreign Service is that you don't just visit a country. You don't just hop in for a week or a couple of weeks or even a month or longer. You actually live overseas. So I lived in seven different countries for extended periods, and I mean two to three years. And before I joined the Foreign Service, I actually lived in Portugal, Spain, also for extended periods and for in, in England for a, a, about three months, it was. So I've had a lot of time to not just visit, but live overseas. And I love that, which is why yeah. I stayed in my career in the Foreign Service for 33 years instead of retiring as quickly as I could have. Absolutely. And where are you from originally? I grew up in Louisiana. Oh, OK. All right. Did you always know that you wanted to travel or is that something you just kind of stumbled into? Well, I guess my family has a kind of unique background. My grandfather went to work in Cuba as a young man and he spent his whole professional life in Cuba. So my father and my uncles grew up in Cuba also, although they came to the U.S. for boarding school. And our family base was in Louisiana, but they, so my family always had this connection with Cuba. And I grew up hearing my father and his brothers and the family and talk about Cuba. And actually all of my older siblings got a chance to visit Cuba as as children. But um, then Fidel Castro came along and I never had the chance to visit Cuba. I was still too young when he took over. But anyway, I had this uh, family background of being a a binational family, if I can say that, spending a lot of time in Cuba and a lot of time in the United States. And um, then when I grew up, uh, I was, I also went away to boarding school and I, well, I didn't like that very much. I realized mm-hmm. I liked to learn about other parts of the world besides just being home in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. So the real, the real spark for me came when I dropped out of college and I went to live in Portugal and I realized how much I loved living overseas. Wow. That's incredible. Did you have a, um, a plan in place when you made that 
decision? <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Actually, I, love that. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I dropped out of college, as I said, and I uh, worked all during college. So I had a little bit of money saved up. And I told my mother I was going to go up and visit a cousin who was at that time working in, in New York State. And my mother said, why spend your money going to New York? You should go to Europe. So I went, went, duh, if my mother says I can go to Europe, I'm going to Europe. So understand I was only 20 years old, but I had a friend living in Portugal. So I wrote to her and said, can I come stay with you for a while? And she said, sure. So off I went. And I thought I was going to go for like a month, but I got a job. I got another job and I ended up staying in Portugal for a year and a half. Uh, My second job was teaching English as a foreign language. And then I spent the next year and a half that I was in Europe also teaching English as a foreign language. So it's a great way for people who want to experience leaving overseas to do it. And that's to get a a job in a language school overseas. And uh, after that three years, I knew that I wanted a career that somehow involved travel. I wasn't Mm -hmm. quite sure what that would be, but I knew I wanted a job that involved travel. Wow, that's amazing. So tell me, where are you taking us today? Well, I'd like to take your listeners and you along the Camino de Santiago, which is in Spain. Excellent. When were you there? I've been to Spain many, many times, but I actually made this pilgrimage along the Camino de Santiago, walking it in 2016. And since then, I've been back. I was back last fall on a horseback Camino. So I've done it twice, but I'd really like to talk about my first experience on the Camino. Absolutely. So I had to do a little bit of research on this um, when after we first talked. Can you tell us a little bit about what this experience is? Well, first, let me tell you about the Camino. It is a a pilgrimage route that has been around since 822 AD, so for more than a thousand years. And I would say that the highlight, the the top of the Camino experience was in the 1200s and 1300s. And at that time, Pilgrims, people who wanted to travel, Christians who wanted to travel, really mm-hmm. did one kind of travel, which was pilgrimages mainly. And there were three diff- three big pilgrim site, pilgrimage sites, Rome, Jerusalem, and Santiago de Compostela. Now, why Santiago de Compostela? Well, it's where St. James the Apostle is buried. So Christians would set out from anywhere in Europe and make their way to Santiago de Compostela. And there were really big numbers of pilgrims traveling in those Middle Ages, 1200s, 1300s. And then after that, um, the numbers started declining due to a lot of factors, plague, wars, the Protestant Mm -hmm. Reformation. Mm -hmm. But um, since about 1970, the numbers have been really going up again um, because its fame has been reawakened and people have said, this is a really neat thing to do. I think I'll try to do it. So the last year before the pandemic, that is 2019, more than 300,000 pilgrims made their way to Santiago and registered their trip with the office that gives out what's called Compostelas, which is the certificate that says, yes, you've done a pilgrimage. 
Of course, wow. many more people than that actually did part or all of the Camino, but didn't bother to get a Compostela. Sure. So, so I, I, I learned about this pilgrimage route way back in 1970 when I read a book called Iberia, which was written by James Michener. And as soon as I read Iberia and it's chapter 13, which is on the Camino, I said, I want to do this. Wow. But I was only 20 years old at that time. I didn't have the money or the time to do it. So I just put it, you know, in the back of my brain and it simmered. And then when I knew I was heading towards retirement, I said, okay, I've been wanting to do this for 40 years. I'm going to do it. So I made it my first long trip after retirement. Um, so anyway, it was in 2016 and I had done all the planning for the trip and there's many ways to do the Camino, but I took the most popular route which is called the French route. Mm -hmm. So you start in France, usually in a small town called Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Pour, which is on close to the Pyrenees. Mm -hmm. And so your first day out, you're walking over the Pyrenees, which is quite daunting. Yeah. Um, and so, again, we can talk about it, but you can, basically, you can do the Camino however you want to do it. But the most common way to do it nowadays is to walk it. And the most common route is the French route. So that's 500 miles long. Wow. In, in my case, I, was, um, I am something of a skeptic, I would put it that way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, the modern culture of the Camino is that you have to walk it. Mm -hmm. And depending on how strict you are with yourself, you say you have to walk, walk it all. Or you have to walk it and carry everything on your back. Wow. Or you have to walk it and depend on the kindness of the people along the route for everything you need. Mm -hmm. So there's all these different levels of how fundamentalist I would say you are about right. it. And I am not fundamentalist at all. I think, <laughs> I, I think the Camino is so wonderful that people should experience it no matter how they travel it. Yeah. If you want to walk it, walk it. If you want to go by bus, go by bus. If you want to take taxis from little town to little town, do that. Mm -hmm. But the most important thing is to experience it. Yeah. So who was with you on this pilgrimage or were you on your own? I planned to go along alone and mm -hmm. I arranged everything to go alone. But at the last minute, my son said he was coming with me. So we had to scramble around and redo reservations and everything. And, and he did come along with me. So oh, it was, it, it changed my trip, but uh, you know, there were some pros and some cons and mainly I'm really glad he came along with me. Oh, that's great. Tell me about um, one of these had to be their moments that you guys had along the way. Okay. This is kind of a comic one. And yeah. so uh, I know it probably embarrasses my son when I tell it. <laughs> but those are the growing, best stories. <laughs> growing up, my son was part of that group of young people who wore their pants hanging down to their knees. Sure. <laughs> and I spent years saying, James, pull up your pants. James, pull up your pants. And he would just ignore me, you know. And right. you know, after if I said it enough times close together, he would say, Mom, get used to it. <laughs> so I would just, just roll. <laughs> so I'd roll my eyes and say, "Fine." 
So in preparing for the Camino, I had a mentor and I asked a lot of questions and I looked at lots of blogs and other things. And I found out that a, a really good thing to do is to wear cargo pants because you have lots of pockets. Mm-hmm. So you can stash like your your guidebook in one pocket and your map in a pocket and your passport in a pocket and whatever you need to do. So you don't have to keep taking off your backpack and opening it up. Right. You just have it hand. So so I bought some um cargo pants for myself. Also, I have very fair skin. So I actually have to wear long pants and long sleeves, even in hot weather. I can't go out and expose my skin to the sun that much. So I had my cargo pants. And when my son decided to join me, I said, okay, well, cargo pants are highly recommended. And we went through again, this whole back and forth about what he was going to wear and not wear and take and not take. But anyway, (laughs) he got his clothes. I had my clothes. So we got there and I was wearing my cargo pants. And as I had said, I would, I had things stuffed in all my pockets. So as it happened, I walked slowly, but my son walked even more slowly. (laughs) So he was usually almost always behind me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you start out in the morning, you're fine, but you've got all these weights in your pocket. So my pants would start sagging down. Right. Right. So here's my son walking behind me, quite a distance usually, but sometimes, you know, pretty close. And he'd say, Mom, pull your pants up. (laughs) Mom, wear a belt. (laughs) Mom, please, you're showing your underwear. So we did several days of this. And finally, one day on the trail, I had this like, bubble rised up in my chest and he said mom pull up your pants and I turned around to him and I said get used to it yeah (laughs) (laughs) revenge oh no it's you know it's just like if you wait long enough you get your chance for the perfect moment of response that's so funny (laughs) so I I, you know I did when we got to the next big town I did go out and buy a belt because it was clear I was you know embarrassing him you you also need to know that sometimes out on the trail there's no one there particularly at the start you you can spend a whole day and really not see anyone so he was he was being needlessly embarrassed as far as I was concerned but Mm -hmm. I did go out and buy a belt but it was just Mm -hmm. the situations was like a perfect reversal of what I had spent years fighting him about his sagging <laughs> right. pants. So that's just one very small story. That's very funny. The Had to Be There podcast is brought to you by Vacations by Kelly, where your host becomes your travel agent. As a proud affiliate of Academy Travel, Kelly specializes in Disney destinations and can help with all non-Disney excursions worldwide as well. When you book with Kelly, you're getting much more than a travel agent. You're getting a personalized concierge-level travel partner. And the best part? Her services are completely free. It's true. So when you're ready to make your next travel dream a reality, Vacations by Kelly is ready to make it happen. Visit hadtobethere.net slash vacations to get started. And you went back and did the Camino again um, last year. That's right, but totally different. It was a, a horseback Camino. That is, I rode a horse from wow. basically the border with Portugal headed north to Santiago. And let me just say my first pilgrimage, 
the walking one that I was just talking about, mm-hmm. I wrote a book about that. So I have a, a you know a lot of incidents that I talk about in my book. Now my horseback Camino, I'm planning to write a book about, but I haven't done that yet. But it was a much shorter trip for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Did you feel that you got more out of one versus the other? They were both unique and special, and I love them both. Yeah. Now, the thing about walking is it takes a long time. So, I mean, we were 49 days walking this Camino. Wow. Um, whereas on horseback, it was much shorter. It was only like eight days. But on horseback, you have, you're not just you, you're having this, also this communion with an, an animal, a horse. Yeah. And also you travel in a group. So you have group dynamics and you have the horses and it's just a totally, totally different experience, but both very worthwhile. Absolutely. And that makes so much sense, depending on what you're hoping to get out of it. Um, Choosing your method of transport, I guess. (laughs) No, but, but that's right. And, you know, and going back to what I was saying before about if you want to walk it, go ahead and walk it, but you don't have to walk it. Right. If you look back in the Middle Ages, actually many, many people rode horses. That was the, a very common means of transportation. Sure. It's not nowadays, but right. it was back then. So if you look at um, paintings or murals of the Camino from back in that period, the people are, many of the people are riding. Wow. That's very neat. That's cool that you got to experience it both ways. And I love that you were moved enough by it to write a book about it. Yes, that's, that's true. I had no plans to write a book when I started, but uh, I did want to do something new for me. And that is when I travel, I've always kept a travel journal that is you know, a record of what I did on the day and my expenses and so forth. So I've, I've done that for many, many years, but about 2015, 16, when I started planning this trip, there was a lot of buzz about something new, which I really knew nothing about, which was blogs. Mm, So I thought, well, maybe I should try this blog thing. So I learned about blogs and I got a laptop and I got everything ready and I was going to plan to to blog. And um, I did for about the first three weeks of my trip. But the connections in northern Spain, the Wi-Fi connections are really, really poor. Mm. So I found I was spending too much time struggling with the technology. That is trying to upload photos, trying to just get my posts done. So after three weeks, I just gave up on the blog and went back and started keeping my handwritten travel journal again. But when I got home, then I thought, okay, well, now I'm going to put all my entries up on the blog and also add all these photos. So I started working on that. And as I had been walking along the Camino, I kept thinking, oh, I wish somebody had told me this before I came. Mm -hmm. Or boy, this is interesting history. I wish people knew about it. Or can you believe the beauty of these windows, these stained glass windows? People Mm -hmm. should hear about it. So gradually over time, I thought, you know, I'm going to write a book. And that's what I did. So my book is actually a hybrid. It's not a pure one or the other. It doesn't fall into any easy category. Mm-hmm. Part of it is a guidebook and part of it is a memoir. 
So, you know, and I guess the the target audience is for people who are thinking about walking the Camino, Mm -hmm. who can use the guidebook information and also want to know what it's like. So that's the memoir part. Yeah. People who know they'll never walk the Camino, but want to know what it's like. (laughs) So, again, that's the the memoir part. And they can experience it secondhand. (laughs) Yeah. An armchair traveler, which, you know, I love reading other people's travel books. So I, you know, I think I should let them read mine. Right. And you've also written another book, not about the Camino, but tell me about this one. I wrote a second book. It really, I would say, is a COVID book. I had Mm -hmm. planned to go back and do some travel and do some research for my second book. But we were locked down. I couldn't go anywhere. So I started thinking about what I could write in the interim without having to travel anywhere. And it took me back to when my son was small and I had been searching for a book for him to read to him on adoption. And I really couldn't find anything. Mm-hmm. So I went on Amazon and did some search search and found there still was not any kind of book like I was looking for. Wow. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to write one. And that's what I did. So my book is on international adoption mm-hmm. and it's called The Baby with Three Families, Two Countries and One Promise. Oh, and that. that's because anyone who goes through an adoption, an international adoption, There's at least three families involved. That is the biological parent or parents, Mm -hmm. the foster family who will have the child in the interim, and then the adopting family. Right. So three families. And they all, because it's international, they have two countries they can claim and they claim them, as my son did. And then the one promise I explained that in the the book. Anyway, um, there is no other book like it on the market. There are books, a lot of books on adoption, but most of them are written for for adults. Right. right. There are some books on adoption that are written for children and they're cute, sweet little books, but most of them are based on animal characters. Mm-hmm. So like a mama bear will adopt a goose, for right. example. Right. And well, I didn't want a book on, based on animals. I wanted a book about an adoption, a real child's adoption. Right. So, and another difference is that those, the the books on adoption for children that exist always concentrate on the adopting mother and the, and the child. Mm -hmm. The rest of the family is not in the picture, not in the book. Whereas for me, adoption is a long and complicated process and it involves a lot of people. As I said, you know, not just three families, but friends and the consular officer who has to give a visa and the social workers and a lot, just a lot of people. And so I wanted to, in a simple way, explain the process of adoption to a child. So that's yeah. another thing. And the, there are other things too that distinguish my book from the other adoption books for children on the market. So I wrote the book that I would have liked to have had when I adopted my son. And it didn't exist then and it only exists now in one book and that's mine. That's wonderful, though, that you saw this need and filled it. (laughs) Well, you know, as I said, I didn't plan to write it, but it does. It is true to my mission, I guess you would say, because it has an international aspect to it. Right, right. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned that you have lived in several different countries. I imagine that you've visited 
much more than that. Do you have a number? <laughs> you have a running tally? I've never counted, but I've done you know, many, many countries because, you know, when you're like, let's say I'm living in Chile, which I was for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, usually if you're having a long weekend or something like that, it's too far to go home. Chile is a long way away. Right. So you'll take your long weekend and maybe go to Buenos Aires in Argentina, mm-hmm. or you might go up to, um, to Bolivia. Or, you know, one of the nearby countries. Yeah. So whenever you're in a country, you tend to visit the nearby countries around it. Or when I was in Israel, for example, I went to Turkey and Greece. Wow. Um, so you you not only are, have the experience of living in the country where you're living, but you visit nearby countries, too. Absolutely. Do you have a favorite? Is there one that always kind of calls you back? Yeah, everybody asks that question. And <laughs> I have to tell you, it's too general. If you ask a more specific question, I can answer. Like if you say, which was the most politically interesting question, country Ooh. you lived in? Then I'll say without question, it was Israel. Israel sure. every day is on the front pages of the U.S. newspapers. Mm-hmm. Politically, it is one of our most important allies. It's the most politically interesting country I served in. But if you ask me, which is the most culturally interesting country you visited, then I would say, oh, without doubt, it's Indonesia. Its culture is so different. It's so different from Western culture. Mm -hmm. You just have to experience it to understand it a little bit. So, again, if you depends on how you frame the question. Sure. um, I'll tell you which country I think really <laughs> brought out that that flavor for me and why I love that country for that reason. Those were great examples. Which country had the best culinary experience? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, hmm, culinary experience. I again, I would say Indonesia, and I'm going to tell wow. you why. Okay. Indonesia is a is a crossroads for other cultures. So it has its native Malay culture, which has mm-hmm. their food, their cuisine, but they've had a lot of immigration from India. So there's great Indian food there. And they've had a lot of immigration from China. So you have fabulous Chinese food. Wow. So you have three main major culinary streams all there and you can get outstanding food. So, you know, I, most people would probably say, oh, well, of course, it's the answer is France. And yes, France has fabulous food, but you're right. mainly going to eat French food in France. Right, right, right. But if you're in Indonesia, you're going to eat Indonesian food, but you're also going to eat Chinese food, really good Chinese food, mm-hmm. and Indian food, really good Indian food. So it's like you get to triple dip. Yeah, that's a great answer. <laughs> Is there anything currently at the top of your travel bucket list? Okay, well, this is not bucket list, but I in the fall, I have two trips planned. I am going back to Portugal, where I've spent a lot of time mm-hmm. with a little side trip to Spain. So I'm really looking forward to that because the lockdown has been hard for me because I yeah. so love traveling. I just yeah. want to go. So I'm going back to places I know well. And then I guess this is a bucket list thing. I am going to Cuba. For the first time. Yay. <laughs> so you oh, heard so how I did for you. <laughs> me too. I've wanted to do this since I was like five years old. Wow. And I'm finally getting to do it. That is very exciting. That's a good bucket list trip for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Julie, this has been so fun chatting with you and hearing about your amazing experiences. Um, if anybody wants to connect with you or purchase your books or find out more about you, where can we do that? I have two websites. I have an author website, which is julieconnorauthor.com. And Connor is C-O-N-N-O-R. So julieconnorauthor.com. And my books are listed there and how to contact me and so forth. I also have a website as a publisher, and that's bayoucitypress.com. Houston is called the Bayou City, B-A-Y-O-U, because we have seven bayous that cut through the city. So my books are also there. And of course, they're up on Amazon and in bookstores also. So that's the best way to connect with me is through either my author or publishing websites. Excellent. And I will include links to all that in the episode show notes. So if anybody wants to reach you, they can easily do so. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. This has been so fascinating. I really appreciate it. And um, best of luck in your upcoming trips. Kelly, thank you again for inviting me. And thank thank you for letting me connect with your guests. And listen, you want to go to Spain? Girl, get there. It's a fabulous (laughs) country. It really is. I believe it. I Like we had talked about before we started recording, that's the one place, even before I was bitten by the travel bug, that's the one place I've always wanted to see. It's worthwhile. It is very worthwhile. (laughs) Americans tend to go to France or England or, you know, Italy. Sure. But Spain has got everything those countries have. So people should visit it more. (laughs) Well, that's it. I'm sold. So (laughs) thank you so much. Have a good one. You too. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to show your support is to rate or review us on whatever platform you're listening. And if this episode left you feeling like you just had to be there, reach out to Kelly to start planning an adventure of your own. Don't forget to follow us at HadToBeThere203 on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And visit our website, www.hadtobethere.net. Until next time, get out there and make your own Had to Be There memories.